The Yesterday and Today podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun compilation of chronological source materials as they pertain to the Beatles. The show is in no way affiliated with Apple Corps, nor any organization connected to John, Paul, George, or Ringo in any way, though we do consider ourselves premier members of the Bungalow Bill fan club. So kick back, turn off your mind, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Yesterday and Today. 1974, Part 6. In this episode, we will cover August 21st through September 16th. Shining to the gypsy guitars That sing to the starry skies Enchanted city of Columbine and Piero We know the magic of your spell Of our romances, you're the hero Now is the time to say farewell Good night, Vienna now love us kiss beneath your linden trees The world is waiting on the edge of the day Just waiting to say goodnight Throughout the month of August, Ringo star and producer Richard Perry gathers songs and musicians in Los Angeles for Ringo's fourth studio album. At the Sunset Sound Studios and Producers Workshop, it is to be called Goodnight Vienna after John's song of the same name. The LP is to be the much-anticipated follow-up album to the Ringo LP. Call me if you want to see me Call me if you still believe me Cause I'm not gonna to feed me with your love I'll be strong with your love I'll be strong and carry on Don't 
regret by what you've seen, dear. I know it's like a bad dream, dear. Remember, I slept too. Remember, I slept too with you. Also contributed a tune. Hoyt was a folk singer-songwriter from the 1960s. He became famous for writing such hits like the Three Dog Night songs, Joy to the World, and Never Been to Spain. He also wrote Steppenwolf's The Pusher. A woman that I know just came from Colombia. She smiled because I did not understand. She held out some very wally ha ha She said it was the best in all the land And I said no, 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 no I don't smoke it no more I'm tired of waking up on the floor No thank you please It only makes me sneeze It ain't make it hard to find the door 
Yorker's pain She smiled because I did not understand Then she held out her ten pound bag of cocaine She said it was the best in all the land And I said no, 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 no I don't smoke it no more I'm tired of it in the pony floor No, thank you, please It only makes me sneeze And it makes it hard to find the door The song Husbands and Wives was also selected to be recorded. The track was written by American singer-songwriter Roger Miller and was a hit in 1966. Roger also wrote such Nashville sound hits such as King of the Road, Dang Me, and England Swings. Two broken hearts, lonely looking like houses where nobody lives. Two people each having so much pride inside, neither side forgives. The angry words spoken in haste, such a waste of two lives. It's my belief pride is the chief cause in the decline in the number of husbands and wives. A woman and a man, a man and a woman, some can and some can't and some can. Hearts lonely looking like houses where nobody lives. Two people each having so much pride inside, neither side forgives. The angry words spoken in haste, such a waste of two. Lives. 
Harry Nielsen also contributed a song for Ringo's new LP. Here's Harry's song. Nobody loved her It was easy to see That made it easier for me John and Bernie Taupin also wrote a tune for Ringo. Here is Elton's demo of the song he wrote. I was born in the north of England. I was raised in a working town. I broke all the rules when I went to school, but the teachers couldn't pin me down. I tried to make my parents proud by adapting to the social powers. Oh, pigs will fly and the earth will fly when they get me doing honest hours.
turn me loose at night I could spend my life with a factory girl Cause the factory girl's my type I hear them gossip from the street Most of what they say is true Oh, don't you know that I hear them say There goes that lazy, no good snooker After Ringo and Richard Perry settled on the tracks Ringo was going to record, he assembled the musicians. They were the usual band that he played with, such as Jesse Ed Davis, Klaus Vorman, Harry Nielsen, Steve Medeo, Vinnie Poncia, Jim Keltner, Lon Van Eaton, Mal Evans, and he phoned John Lennon. Ringo phoned John to assist in supervising his contribution. John also received a call from Elton John a few days ago. Elton was recording at his Caribou Ranch studio in Colorado for the Caribou Sessions, and he asked John to come to Colorado and join him on the sessions. Lennon accepted both invitations. During this time, Cynthia Lennon brought Julian to New York to spend time with his dad. She was thrilled that John finally made the time after a long period of having no physical contact with his son. Having recently been divorced from her second husband of three years, Roberto Bassanini, Sin recalled the days leading to John and Julian's reconciliation. While I was picking up the pieces after my second marriage, I was stunned to read in the papers of a major development in John's life. He and Yoko had parted. Apparently they had agreed on a trial separation late in 1973, and John had moved to Los Angeles with Mei Pang, a young Chinese employee. What might this mean for Julian? Would John be willing now to have contact with me and see his son? I wondered about getting in touch with him, or whether I should just wait and see. I decided for the moment to wait. It seemed that John was going through a strange phase. Over the next few months, he hit the headlines several times for being drunk and brawling, but he was also creative for the first time in ages, working on a new album and getting together with other musicians, including friends like singer Harry Nielsen and Ringo, to record an album of his favourite songs by other musicians. I hoped that this would prove the start of a more positive period in his life that might include his son. 
but would he get in touch, or should I contact him? The decision was made for me when I went to London on a business trip in the summer of 1974. I'd always loved doing interior decoration, and when I met someone who suggested I did some work for him, I couldn't wait. That evening after our meeting, I checked into my hotel, and I discovered it was the base for the local hookers. Swarms of girls done up to the nines and shifty-looking men were traipsing in and out. I felt a bit out of place and in need of company, so I rang an old friend and got a crossed line. After a few seconds, I recognised the voice I was hearing. It was Patty Harrison's. We were delighted to be in touch again, and she asked me out to dinner that evening. She was now separated from George, but we caught up on each other's lives, and she introduced me to a group of her friends, one of whom was a record producer. It was about to sail to New York on the SS France with Elton John, then the most successful rock star in the world, who was due to give a series of concerts in the US. I mentioned to him that I wanted John to see Julian, and he said, Why not come with us? I was startled could see that it just might work. Patty chipped in and said that her sister Jenny, whom I hadn't seen since our ill-fated trip to Greece six years earlier, was now living on the outskirts of New York and would gladly put me up while Julian was with John. The next day I phoned Peter Brown, got John's number, and rang him. He was surprised to hear from me, but not as surprised as I was to get through to him on the first try after so many years of non-communication. Our conversation was awkward and neither of us wanted to make small talk, so I got straight to the point and said I'd like to bring Julian over to see him. John sounded pleased with the idea and agreed. I told him I had no money, so he said he'd pay for first-class tickets for us. I was thrilled. A few days later, we sailed from Southampton. The France was a beautiful old ship, and this was to be its final voyage.
was excited at the thought of seeing his dad, but nervous too. He was a bright, lovable, but shy 11-year-old, and I hoped that John would be proud of him. I knew that after three years they would have a lot to learn about each other, and I prayed that they would get on. When the ship docked, John was waiting for us on the dock with May beside him. It was both wonderful and painful to see him again. He was pale and gaunt and clearly nervous. He pecked me on the cheek, then scooped Julian into his arms and hugged him. Then we were introduced to May, a sweet but slightly lost-looking girl of 23. Ain't she sweet? Oh, now ain't she? No, direction. I'll be on mine. Ain't that perfection? I repeat now, ain't she nice? Well, look her over once or twice. Well, I ask you very hydrophilicky, ain't she nice? We were ushered into the limousine, where Julian sat between John and May, and I was on the seat behind them. John chatted exclusively to Julian, leaving me an awkward, silent passenger. I was glad I was going to stay with Jenny and could leave them to it. They dropped me at the Pierre Hotel in Midtown, New York, where John had booked me a room for the night. When I got to my room, I was still finding it hard to walk straight. After days at sea, everything was swaying. I ordered something to eat, then phoned Jenny. Her answering machine picked up, so I called Patty in London. I'm sure she's there, she told me. I let her know you were coming. I tried her numerous times, but when there was still no reply, I called John, dreading an icy put-down. To my relief, he was sympathetic. He told me he, May and Julian were flying to Los Angeles and that I could go with them and stay with friends of his, drummer Jim Keltner and his wife. Another sin. So the arrangements were made for John, May, Cynthia and Julian to go to L.A. and record with Ringo for three days, then fly to Colorado and record with Elton John for two. Lennon felt that by taking Cynthia and Julian with him, he would not fall back into the same drunken, drugged-out lifestyle he had experienced the last time. So John planned a trip to California in two days. But before then... On Friday, August 23rd. Back in New York, on the roof of Eddie Germano's apartment at 9 p.m. this evening, John witnesses his first UFO. It happened on that evening after John and May returned to the apartment on East 52nd Street from the studio. Here's John. Well, I was in New York in an apartment, and I was just standing by the roof, and I looked left, and there was this thing about a hundred yards away. I could have hit it with a stone if I threw it. And it was really, I could have even seen it without my glasses, and I'm very short-sighted. I would never have noticed if I hadn't happened to look out. You know, I looked around me, and nobody else was looking out of windows or anything. The cars were going on, because it's quiet, very low. It's not that you expect a sort of Martian in the sky. It was below rooftop level, and it was just coasting round very quietly, like a tourist, you know. It was just pot luck that I saw it, excuse the expression. I was straight as a die. On his forthcoming album, Walls and Bridges, John put a liner note saying, quote, On the 23rd of August, 1974, at 9 o'clock, I saw a UFO. 
close quote. I almost took it off the album, but one time I, I said, pull it off. A, I'm going to get people with weird-looking eyes coming up to me saying, I've come from the saucer, you know? And the other bit is, they're going to say he's crazy, you know? But I thought, look, I saw it. You know, I don't care what anybody says. There it was, and nobody can explain what it was to me, so it's, I said UFO, you know? And he signed it with his initials, J.L. And I was looking at it and thinking, what is it? What is it? You know, is it a helicopter? No, it's making no noise. Is it a balloon? You know, is it the blimp? Because all these lights around the bottom of it flashing on and off. And you know, one part of me all the time was saying, that's a UFO, you know. But I, you, some part of you doesn't want to believe it. And I was in the other room not knowing what's going on. May Pang. And he's screaming for me. And I'm saying, oh, yeah, okay, fine. I'll be there in a second. And uh, he says, no, now. I come running out. And there is this this thing that's with these lights flashing on and off, making no sound, because I had to get you out here because nobody would believe me. <laughs> so I said, I know. I said, we were just so amazed. This thing, I was just staring at it. It's just, just going overhead, real quiet, very slow. Then it started tilting. And then at one point, it just went down further down the river and just stood still and just went straight up. And I, I was making all these phone calls. I was screaming, oh my God, you won't believe what I just saw. Here's Elliot Mintz. One of those frantic phone calls that left New York City that night came to me. I got a friend to call the police and call the newspapers the next day to check if anybody else had seen anything. I remember picking up the phone and John was on the other line and he was incredibly animated and excited. And he said, Elliot, I've just seen my first UFO. He described it uh, very similarly to the way uh, May Pang just described it. He asked me whether or not I could call the local New York City Police Department in that district and ask if anyone else had called in claiming that they had seen UFOs, as well as the newspapers. I made both of those calls. There was confirmation that some other people had called. And a couple of people had rung in and seen something in the same area at the same time as me. And as of this moment, it still remains an unidentified flying story. On August 24th, John flies to Los Angeles, California to assist Ringo in recording the track Goodnight Vienna for Ringo's new LP. Okay, with gusto, boys, with gusto. Accompanying John are May Pang, Cynthia, and Julian Lennon. May Pang. And we flew to LA to be here at the sessions and, and do that. Cynthia Lennon remembers. We got onto the plane together, but my seat was at the back of the first class section while they sat at the front. It hurt, but I knew John was more comfortable keeping me at a distance. He had always hated reminders of painful episodes in his past, and I realized, sadly, that that was all I meant to him now. He liked to make a clean break and move on, but because of Julian, he couldn't do that with me. 
I could see how hard it must be for him, and it wasn't easy for me, but I was grateful that he hadn't left me alone in New York. In Los Angeles we were driven to the Beverly Hills Hotel, where John and May left us, promising to return the next morning and take Julian out for the day. We had a fun evening, flicking through the endless channels on the TV, but when John appeared the next morning, Julian burst into tears and kept repeating, I want Mummy to come. I did my best to persuade him to go. I knew my presence would make everyone feel awkward, but he hid behind the sofa, cried and refused point-blank to budge unless I went too. In the end, we all went to Disneyland. For me, it was an excruciating day. John marched on ahead with Julian, while I tagged along at a distance, feeling redundant. May saved the day. She chatted easily with me and was kind and sensitive toward Julian, who visibly relaxed as time passed. After a tense lunch in a burger bar, and a long, hot afternoon trailing round the rides, I was glad when it was all over. I would rather not have been there at all, and John's clipped manner reinforced my sadness. I still cared for him deeply, and had never given up hope that we could be friends and learn to be comfortable with each other. In the evening, John went to Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood and worked with Ringo on John's song, Goodnight Vienna. Once again, May Pang. As we did all the session, uh, Ringo was short one song. And John says, well, I've been saving this one for myself, but I think you, you could use this one. It'd be a good song for you to do. Only you. And it was great watching it, because there's Ringo and, and Jim Kelton playing drums. And John did the lead vocal, and then which Ringo later overdubbed. Oh, okay, so now you bet. Only you can make the dark. 
The next day, John would spend more time with Julian. Once again, Cynthia Lennon remembers. While Julian was with John and May, I spent time with Mal Evans, the Beatles' former roadie. John had asked him to keep me company and show me around. It was good to see him again, a big bear of a man. He had always been gentle and kind. I'd known his wife, Lil, and their two children. They used to come to Kenwood, so I was sad to hear that he'd left them and was living in L.A. with a new girlfriend. Mal made sure I had a good time. He took me to a great Mexican restaurant, introduced me to Tequila Sunrises, and drove me all round Los Angeles. He, too, was sad about the change in John, and shook his head when Yoko's name was mentioned. On the last evening, he asked us all over to his house. I had told him how hard I found John's awkwardness, and Mal, ever the supportive Mr. Fixit, wanted to help. It seemed to work, while Mal poured the drinks... John and May sat down with me and we chatted. At last, I saw a glimmer of hope that things would ease. For the first and only time since our divorce, John seemed to put aside his guilt and embarrassment and relax with me. How's Roberto? he asked. I told him we'd parted and he said he was sorry. Are you okay? I told him I was and filled him in on the life Julian and I were leading back in Mel's. John reminisced about Liverpool and old friends and asked me to give them his love. Halfway through the evening, Yoko called. My heart sank. Would John revert to being the sulky boy with his tail between his legs? Surprisingly, he didn't. He came back to join us, still smiling. Julian's a lovely boy, he told me. I can't believe how grown up he is, Sin. He's not a little boy anymore. I can really talk to him now. By the end of the evening, I was optimistic. The thaw had begun. 
John and Julian had spent time together. John and I were talking, and he was with a woman who was supportive of his relationship with his son. We'll try to get Julian over again soon, May told me, when I said I hoped John wouldn't leave it for another three years. I liked her and hoped their relationship would last. The next day, on August 26th, Cynthia and Julian Lennon leave Los Angeles en route to London. Cynthia is optimistic that having had Julian spend time with his dad, that John would develop a relationship now in Julian's life. I flew back to England with Julian, who was happy and full of stories about John. He'd recorded Julian playing drums in the studio, then used the result on one of the tracks for his new album, Walls and Bridges. When it came out a few months later, Julian was credited, which thrilled him. After our visit, Julian talked to his father on the phone every few weeks. Mostly it was John who phoned, but Julian plucked up the courage to call him sometimes too. He was still in awe of his father, perhaps unsurprisingly, since John was not only very distant, but also a globally famous rock star. On that day, Lennon does a phone-in interview and is asked about his stay in Los Angeles. He is also asked about his old friend, Ringo Starr. Ringo's in fine fettle. I was just down there recording with him in Los Angeles. He's doing his next album, and it sounds like another winner, too. So he's in good form. Good night, Rihanna. It's time to go. John and May left Los Angeles and flew to Colorado, where they met with Elton John at his Caribou Ranch. Elton was recording tracks for his new album.
Elton was planning to record one of his favorite Beatles songs from one of his favorite Beatles LPs. I'd cycled to Hatch End to get the copy of Bloody Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Sergeant Pepper. He asked John to sing harmony and play guitar on the track. He agreed and they recorded Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Lennon also arranged a reggae arrangement for the middle eight.
with glass dressing portals, with looking glass ties. Suddenly, someone is there at the turnstile. The girl with kaleidoscopes. During the same session, Elton asked John if he would contribute on another track. Elton loved the Lennon song One Day at a Time from Lennon's Mind Games album. John agreed to play guitar on the track.
On August 28th, having recorded with Elton John at his Caribou Ranch Studios, John and May fly back home to New York. On August 31st, John claims in the U.S. federal court that the Nixon administration tried to have him deported because they had heard he was one of the organizers of an anti-war demonstration at the Republican convention in San Diego in 1972. John also says that his phone was tapped for a long period. John spoke outside the courtroom following the hearing. It's still what I like to be. It's still, uh, the, it's still Paris or Rome to me. Uh, like they used to be thousands of years ago, and I want to be here. I want to be able to be here and be in England and France or travel wherever I want. I don't expect to be, ha you know, hassled unless I'm going to Hungary or something or Czechoslovakia. Then I'd expect it. Your defense must be costing you a lot of money. Yeah. Is it worth it? It will be. On Friday, September 6, 1974, at a London press conference... George Harrison launches his own record label, Dark Horse, and announces plans for a Ravi Shankar concert tour of Europe through September and October. I'd like to talk, actually, about uh, the Dark Horse label and uh, Splinter and, of course, Ravi Shankar. I tell you, Ravi Shankar will knock spots off Tchaikovsky and a lot of them, and all you Tchaikovsky fans and Bach and Beethoven. Okay, they were great, but they're all dead. How did you... Why did you get the label together in the first place? Why didn't you go through Apple? Uh, because Apple seemed to, um, as Newton said, all apples must fall. I mean, Apple was just going through such chaos from a business point of view anyway, and at that time, John and Paul didn't really want to know about it. You know, they were getting ready to sweep Apple Records underneath the mm. carpet, and Ringo and I were planning to try and keep it going, and there was so much problem, you know, just from... Um, old contracts that it seemed simpler just to start afresh. Mm. The first release of the Dark Horse label is to be the album The Place I Love by Splinter. Well, I'll play a track from Splinter, okay. uh, Splinter's album. This Good is uh, Gravy Train, I believe.
Harrison also appoints Jonathan Clyde as the director of the company. During the A&M Dark Horse launch, 32-year-old George Harrison was discovering love again. Her name was Olivia Trinidad Arias. She was a secretary at A&M Records where George had his solo recording contract. She was 27 years old when she met him, not a young girl. Born in 1948, Arias was a smart, sweet woman whose family had immigrated from Mexico and settled in Hawthorne, California. After she graduated from Hawthorne High School in 1963, Arias went to work as a secretary. Beatle historian Martin Lewis. George found in Olivia somebody who had shared his passion for things spiritual and who had a broader view of life than just the material possessions.
At Abbey Road Studios in London on September 9th, EMI is preparing a new Wings EP titled Wings Live in the Studio. The tracks were recorded several weeks ago at Abbey Road Studios for the One Hand Clapping proposed TV film.
Radio, WABC. Well, watch out. Got Billy Preston coming at you right here at Music Radio, WABC. I'm Chuck Leonard. I got the heavy cooking for you tonight. And we got nothing from nothing. up in a moment. Beetle Fest 74 comes to New York. He asked me to go. It was the first Beetle Fest they had. And he says, why don't you go check it out? I'd like to know what they're selling. John Lennon gets the Elton influence. Friends of the former Beatles have the year's top tunes. And Paul and Mike release a new album. So I went down and we started working in his house on this track uh, called Leave It. Next on Yesterday and Today. For more information or to contact the show, visit yesterdayandtodaypodcast.wordpress.com or email at yesterdayandtodaypodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at yesterdaypod on Twitter and search Yesterday and Today Podcast on Facebook. See you next time.
I'm Paul Kaminsky. I'm James Kaminsky. And I'm Wayne Kaminsky. And we bring you the Kaminsky family of podcasts Yesterday and Today and the Third Men podcast. You might know me from one of those dumb voices I do, or my dad (laughs) from his better show than ours. (laughs) Wow. And we're here to tell you about some cool merchandise you can pick up for the shows. As we mentioned in each episode, we do not in any way profit from these shows whatsoever, but to break even on some expenses, we have put up some cool merch that you can pick up to help support the show. Yes, some fun apparel, things you can put on yourself. Are we going to be selling Marks and Spence underwear? (laughs) Don't worry, we will. You can head to our social media pages. That's Facebook.com slash Yesterday and Today Podcast or Facebook.com slash Third Men. Or you could head to Society6.com slash Kaminsky Family Podcast. That's Society, the number six, dot com slash K-A-M-I-N-S-K-I Family Podcasts. Yeah, keep our lights on. I'm in the dark. <laughs> Dad, any words of wisdom? Hello? The lights just went out. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we need your help. <laughs> Buy stuff. Perhaps a coffee mug that you can enjoy a beverage out of while listening to our shows. And if you haven't got yours, please send forth in and get a free one. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Dad. All right. We'll see you on the podcast, folks. Bye. It's audio. You can't see oh, me. For God's sake.